0: Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novograti. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these big signals and messages. he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, December thirtieth, 2014. I'm recording this week's podcast from Athens, Greece. As you know, the 114th Congress convenes next Tuesday. So I'll begin this week's podcast with an outlook on the potential for tax reform in 2015. I'll also share some news about a potential change in the leadership for the Joint Committee on Taxation and certain change in leadership for the Congressional Budget Office. These are key positions that could have great influence on tax credit proposals. In our low Compensating Tax Credit section, I'll talk about a clarification to HUD's Prevailing Wage Rules for the Rental Assistance Demonstration or RAD program. I'll also share HUD's year in review of its programs. Then, I'll discuss report by the National Low-Income Housing Coalition on how well federal programs address the housing needs of extremely low-income households. In this week's New Markets Tax Credit segment, I'll talk about the importance of the New Market Tax Credit Program to rural communities, particularly in terms of health care services and job creation. In historic tax credit news, I have two state-level updates. The first is an announcement of awards under the Ohio Historic Preservation Tax Credit Program. The second is about a new Nebraska State Historic Task program that will begin accepting applications this week. Finally, in our Renewable Energy Tax Credit section, I'll discuss two reports that call for a more coherent and predictable energy policy. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, the 114th Congress will convene January 6th, exactly one week from today. So, I'll start off today's general news section with an outlook on the potential for tax reform in the coming year. Although the last Congress was characterized by gridlock and lack of agreement, many believe that comprehensive tax reform is possible in 2015. Among those is recently retired chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, Dave Camp. On his last day in Congress earlier this month, Camp released the Tax Reform Act of 2014, The proposal formalized the tax reform discussion draft he released in February without modifications. Camp knew that his 979-page bill wouldn't pass when he introduced it this month, but the message behind the gesture was clear. It was a project three years in the making, and it symbolized the legacy of Camp's long push for comprehensive tax reform. It was also a spur for his remaining colleagues to continue what he started. Representative Paul Ryan, who will take Camp's place as House House Ways and Means Committee Chairman, voiced his support for overhauling the tax code, but acknowledged that it would be difficult. Ryan told the Wall Street Journal's CEO Council earlier this month that Republicans and President Obama may have a hard time agreeing on individual taxation, but that progress could be made on corporate tax reform. Ryan also said he considered Camp's legislation to be a marker rather than a starting point. With 2016 being an election year, timing is essential. Ryan said that he could imagine corporate tax changes in 2015 before the elections. Otherwise, changes would likely need to wait until 2017 after a new president is elected. Those who are hoping for an overhaul to happen sooner rather than later were encouraged to hear President Obama announce during his year in news conference two weeks ago that he's planning to issue specific tax reform proposals in the near future. I'll go into more detail on the future of tax reform in my Wash & Wire column for the February issue of the Novograd Journal of Tax Credits. If you are not already a subscriber to our monthly magazine, you can sign up and receive it at www.novicode.com. In other news, it's still not clear who will head up the Joint Committee on Taxation, also known as the JCT. As listeners know, the JCT is the bipartisan committee that advises Congress on the systems and methods of internal revenue laws. Neither Ryan nor Senator Hatch, the incoming chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, have announced whether they want to replace the JCT's current Chief of Staff, Thomas Bartold. Bartold has been the JCT's Chief of Staff since 2009. Meanwhile, there will be a new Director of the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, After current director Douglas Elmendorf's term expires January 3rd, his successor, however, has not yet been named. One likely reason that Republicans did not reappoint Elmendorf is they believe he resists the use of dynamic scoring or macroeconomic scoring. It's a method that considers macroeconomic effects of legislation when estimating long-term budgetary effects. As I've mentioned in previous podcasts, dynamic scoring is of particular significance to long income tax credit and new market tax credit proposals, and that they should cost less or even be revenue positive under certain dynamic scoring assumptions. It's a method that Republicans have long supported. In fact, House Republican leaders last week introduced a proposal to the House Rules Committee that would require the CBO and the JCT to apply dynamic scoring to major pieces of legislation in the new Congress. So while it's not yet known who will replace Elmendorf, there's one thing you can bet on. Republicans will make sure his replacement is pro-dynamic scoring. Follow me on Twitter for the latest updates. My Twitter handle is at In affordable housing news, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, issued a notice last week that clarifies whether developments in the Rental Assistance Development Program's second component, known as RAD-2, need to pay prevailing wage rates to laborers. The answer? It depends on when the development was approved by HUD. First, some background. Under a HUD rule published last June, prevailing wage rates are applicable to RAD 1 developments with nine or more units. Those are developments transitioning from public housing and moderate rehabilitation properties to long-term Section 8 contracts. The prevailing wage requirement applies if a public housing agency or HUD entered into agreements with the builder for Section 8 use before construction or rehabilitation started. The prevailing wage is determined by the Davis-Bacon Act of 1931. However, the original RAD announcement failed to address whether the prevailing wage requirements apply to RAD 2. RAD 2 allows rent supplement, rental assistance payment, and moderate rehabilitation properties to convert tenant-based vouchers issued upon contract expiration or termination to project-based assistance. Many of the RAD2 properties have been developed on the assumption that the prevailing wage requirements will not be imposed, and that allows for slightly lower building costs. HUD said that it will not, that's right, it will not enforce the prevailing wage requirements for RAD2 properties that were either submitted and approved to proceed by HUD before June 25, 2014, or submitted and approved to proceed by HUD prior to December 31, 2014, and involved the receipt of long-term Tax Credits that need to be used before December 31, 2014. HUD said that those conversions are necessary to preserve a significant amount of housing inventory. It also ruled that HUD will enforce prevailing wage requirements for RAD-2 properties that qualify as existing housing and are submitted and approved to proceed by HUD after December 31st. Developers need to be aware of these regulations as they could affect their eligibility for the RAD program and will likely affect their costs. Also, HUD reminded builders that the prevailing wage requirements will continue to be enforced for RAD 1 properties. If you have any questions about RAD or any other HUD program, please contact my partner Susan Wilson in our Austin, Texas office at 512-340-0420. While we're on the subject. HUD last week issued a press release about how RAD and other programs did in 2014 and what was planned for them in 2015. HUD said that the first 57 RAD deals of 2014 have raised nearly $440 million in private financing for the renovation of 7,500 public housing units. In these transactions, every $1 in public funding raised $19 in private funding. Still, it was apparent that funding for RAD needed to be expanded. Public housing authorities have submitted RAD applications for 187,000 units, but the program previously capped the number of participating units at 60,000. As of the end of October, there were nearly 120,000 units on the waiting list. To address the shortage, Congress recently raised the program cap from 60,000 to 185,000 units as part of the fiscal year 2015 spending bill. HUD said that its ultimate goal is to have the cap eliminated completely so that billions of dollars of private investment can be used to renovate and revitalize public housing across the country. In other news, the National Low Income Housing Coalition, or NLIHC, recently released a report that explores the extent to which existing federal rental housing production programs serve the lowest-income households. The report presents strategies used by affordable housing developers to achieve affordability at their rental properties without relying on vouchers. NLIHC found that the low-income housing tax program does serve extremely low-income households, but rarely on its own. At least, that was the case with many of the properties surveyed in the report. A majority of the surveyed low-income housing tax credit properties serving extremely low-income households relied heavily on housing choice vouchers. Extremely low-income households are those incomes at or below 30% of area median income, or I should say those households with incomes at or below 30% of area median income. They made up about a quarter of renter households in 2012. That means there were 10.3 million extremely low-income households in the United States in 2012, and there were only 3.2 million units available and affordable to that 10.3 million households. NLIHC found that 69% of the extremely low-income households they surveyed received some type of rental assistance. Researchers also surveyed 241 affordable housing developers and they found that 33% of them have no units serving extremely low-income households, 36% have fewer than half their units serving extremely low-income households, and only 31% have more than half of their units serving extremely low-income households. Researchers also interviewed developers who served extremely low-income households without housing vouchers. These developers used a number of strategies to achieve affordability, including having a mix of units affordable to households at different incomes, layering multiple funding sources, using non-traditional resources such as private donations to fill funding gaps, reducing or eliminating mortgage debt, and cultivating strong local partnerships with municipal and or state governments. This report highlights the importance of simplifying the process of financing affordable housing refining existing programs so that developers have more of an incentive to serve extremely low-income households, and finding ways to fund the ongoing operating costs of units that serve the lowest-income households. The report is titled, Aligning Federal Low-Income Housing Programs with Housing Need. You can find a copy of the report at www.taxcredithousing.com. In new market tax credit news, there was a column last week about the importance of of the New Markets Tax Credit for Rural Communities. The column was written by Leah Theobald, CEI Capital Management's Director of Operations, and the piece was written for the business website Triple Pundit. She wrote that 20% of the country's population lives in rural areas, yet fewer than 10% of physicians practice in rural communities. Rural populations also have higher rates of age-adjusted mortality, disability, and chronic disease than urban populations. This means that doctors and healthcare providers are least accessible to the people who need them the most. t highlighted the success of the New Markets Tax Credit in helping bring dozens of community health centers to these underserved populations. The New Markets Tax Credit is also a major job creator. Overall, more than 30% of the full-time jobs created by the New Markets Tax Credit program are in rural places. This is fairly impressive considering that only 20% of New Market Tax Credit investments, generally speaking, go into these areas. To learn more about how the New Market Tax Credit can be used to maximize community benefit, I invite you to join us at our upcoming conference. The Novigradic New Market Tax Credit Conference will be held in San Diego, January 22nd and 23rd. You can register online at www.novogro.com/events. In historic tax credit news, I have an update from Ohio. Earlier this month, the Ohio Development Services Agency announced the latest awardees of its State Historic Tax Credit. A total of $41.8 million in Ohio Historic Preservation Tax Credits will go to 31 applicants planning to rehabilitate 35 historic buildings. The State Historic Tax Credit Program helps finance the rehabilitation of historically significant buildings. Applicants are eligible for credit equal to 25% of qualified rehabilitation expenditures with a $5 million transaction cap. The program, or that should say this round, is the 13th round. The $41.8 million in tax credit allocations are expected to leverage $600 million in private investments in 12 counties. Director of the Ohio Development Services Agency, David Goodman, said in a press release that this program has been a valuable tool to revitalize Ohio communities. He said that developers who receive the state HTCs are able to transform vacant and underused properties into places viable for businesses and living. Among other things, the awards include developments that will create new office, hotel, retail, and event space. Residential projects will create 792 new market-rate housing units. Additionally, 279 affordable housing units will be preserved or built. The state of store tax credit allocations range from a low of $69,000 to a high of $5 million. One of the recipients is the Cincinnati Music Hall, which will actually receive $25 million in state HTCs. The project will receive $2.5 million in credits this round, and again in each of the semiannual rounds over the next five years. The Music Hall was awarded the credits under the state program's new Catalytic designation category. Catalytic projects are defined as those that will foster economic developments within 2,500 feet of the historic building being renovated. To learn more about the Ohio Historic Preservation Tax Credit and other state historic tax credit programs, go to our Historic Tax Credit Resource Center. In another state-level update, I have good news for those interested in doing historic preservation in Nebraska. The Nebraska State Historic Preservation Office will begin accepting applications for its new state historic tax credit beginning January 2nd. Nebraska will begin offering a 20% state historic tax credit for qualified expenditures and individual projects can qualify for up to $1 million in credits. The program was created this past April under the Nebraska Job Creation and Main Street Revitalization Act of 2014, and it's authorized at $15 million per year from 2015 through 2018. The program is meant to spur private investment in historic preservation and boost employment across the state. It's also designed to keep Nebraska competitive with neighboring states that offer their own state tax credits. Missouri, Iowa, and Kansas have all offered successful state historic tax credit programs for years. To learn more about the Nebraska credit or about historic tax credit programs in other states, please contact my partner Tom Boschuk in our Cleveland, Ohio office at 216-298-9000. In renewable energy tax credit news, a report by an international energy organization says the United States needs a coherent energy strategy, including longer-term renewable energy tax credits. The report was issued by the International Energy Agency, or IEA, earlier this month. It was largely positive, but featured pointed criticism of the federal government for not providing consistent long-term policy. The report says that the current oil and gas boom benefits the United States, but warns that low oil prices can divert attention from renewables. The report says a cheap obstacle in U.S. energy policy is a lack of clarity. It specifically points out that the one-year retroactive renewal of the Renewable Energy Production Tax Credit, which was signed into law December 19th and expires on Wednesday of this week, is an example of that. The executive director of the IEA said the short-term renewal doesn't provide wind power producers with the certainty they need for long-term investments. Wind energy growth in the United States has largely followed the fate of the wind production tax credit. When the credit has been extended, growth occurred. Uncertainty over the credit has tended to slow production. Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz attended the event where the report was released. He agreed that there is a need for a more cohesive policy In the United States on energy. He also said the IEA report will help inform the U.S. Quadrennial Energy Review, which President Barack Obama directed Moniz to create last year. That document is scheduled to be released in January. IEA says that the United States is in a good position to take advantage of the current low price market for energy, but it also says that this might be the perfect time to re-examine U.S. energy policy rather than waiting for the next crisis. The report is called Energy Policies of IEA Countries, United States, 2014. It's available for purchase at www.iea.org. In other news, a new report makes the case that tax credits are the key factor in the United States wind power boom. The news website, Vox, released a report covering the growth of wind power since 1998. It shows that wind capacity gradually increased, with ups and downs over that period. Those changes are due largely to the status of tax credits. The article suggests that the failure to establish a long-term production tax credit could severely hurt the industry and nation. In 2004, about 10 years ago, Congress stopped tinkering with the production tax credit, and states began mandating renewable energy. That led to a boom in wind power that lasted until 2012, when Congress threatened to eliminate the PTC. Since then, the long-term future of the production Tax Credit has been uncertain. The latest step by Congress was the retroactive one-year extension of the PTC this month. The Vox reported, or their report I should say, points out that 4.1% of U.S. electricity now comes from wind power, and roughly 80% of that power comes from 10 states led by Texas. The concludes that the goal of getting 20% of U.S. electricity from wind power by 2030 is still in play. But, without a production tax credit to spur a new investment, it's possible that wind power could lose its momentum. To learn more about the production tax credit and other renewable energy incentives, please contact my partner Stephen Tracy in our San Francisco office at 415-356-8000. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening and have a happy new year. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes.